Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 26th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal is set to hear yet another constitutional challenge to the IMR process. Here's what happened in the case of Ramirez versus State of California, Department of Healthcare Services. Daniel Ramirez filed a workers' compensation claim against the State of California that was resolved in 2011 by way of stipulations with future medical care. In July 2014, the state fund received a request for authorization from his PTP for 12 sessions of acupuncture. You are timely denied the treatment, and Ramirez requested an IMR which upheld the denial of treatment. The anonymous IMR reviewer denied treatment by forming the opinion that the PTP's reporting of functional improvement by the acupuncture was not credible. Ramirez appealed the IMR determination on substantive grounds and sought an order disclosing the identity of the IMR doctor so that he could conduct discovery. The work comp judge declined jurisdiction over these issues and amended the work comp judge's order, thus providing a final order from which a petition for writ of review could follow. The petition for writ of review was filed in the 3rd District Court of Appeal in February, and indeed, the court issued a writ on May 7, 2015. Ultimately, the case will be argued and heard by the 3rd District Court of Appeal. Ramirez challenges the law on constitutional grounds and questions here whether or not the legislature had plenary power to remove jurisdiction over medical treatment disputes from the WCAB and assign that jurisdiction to an independent agency. Ramirez claims IMR violates California Constitution Article 14, Section 4, which expressly forbids the legislature from using its plenary power to impair or render ineffectual in any measure the creation and existence of the Industrial Accident Commission. This, he says, is a separation of powers violation. Ramirez alerts the court that this constitutional issue is pending elsewhere, pointing to the case of Stevens versus WCAB, a review pending in the First District Court of Appeal. Thus, the constitutionality of IMR is now called into question in two districts of the same Court of Appeal and will be decided in the coming months. Stevens is more favorable to applicants since the First District Court of Appeal is the most liberal, and the Stevens case has the most passionate facts. The Ramirez case is in the 3rd District, located in Sacramento. Its jurisdiction consists of 23 counties, many of which are conservative. Four of the sitting associate justices in the 3rd District were appointed by Governor Schwarzenegger. Should the 3rd District in Ramirez rule differently than the 1st District in Stevens, a quagmire would be created that would trigger the intervention by the California Supreme Court. Thus, for the defense, the Ramirez appeal is strategically a gift that gives it a foot in the door of a more conservative court. In another case, the WCAB, in a split panel decision, upheld the validity of an untimely IMR decision. 
In this case, the party stipulated that Norberto Arredondo sustained industrial injury to his back and psyche with a need for future medical treatment. Applicants PTP submitted a request for authorization for medications, a back brace, and eight sessions of physical therapy. The state fund timely conducted UR that denied certification for the request. Applicant appealed the UR determination by requesting IMR. Before the IMR determination issued, applicant filed a DOR requesting an award claiming that the IMR determination was invalid because it did not issue within the time described by law. And for that reason, he claimed the treatment request was subject to determination by the WCAB. This raised the question, does the WCAB have jurisdiction where the IMR and administrative director has failed to issue a determination within the statutory time limit? The work comp judge concluded that the IMR determination was valid and the WCAB had no authority to determine the medical treatment dispute. The WCAB upheld the judge's decision in the split panel decision of Arredondo versus Trimodal Distribution Services and the State Compensation Insurance Fund. It reasoned that IMR is a governmental action and the timeframes are directory and not mandatory. The 30-day period does not begin to run until receipt of the supporting documentation. Thus, the time allowed for IMR is 45 days because 15 days are allowed for submission and receipt of supporting documentation. The legislature charged the administrative director with the responsibility of conducting IMR. In this way, IMR is distinctly different than UR, where a defendant is obligated to perform within the statutory and regulatory framework. On the other hand, IMR is a governmental action that occurs under the auspices and control of the administrative director. It has long been recognized that statutory provisions that guide governmental action are not usually regarded as mandatory unless accompanied by negative words, importing that the acts required shall not be done in any other manner or time than that designated in the statute. However, the legislature implemented no such provisions for invalidating IMR if a determination does not issue within the timeframes. But Commissioner Sweeney dissented from the opinion. In her view, the time requirements should be construed as mandatory in order to uphold the basic constitutional and statutory provisions of workers' compensation law that require prompt provision of medical care. As with the untimely UR, the issue of timeliness of an IMR determination is a legal dispute that is within the jurisdiction of the WCAB. The State Compensation Insurance Fund has filed a 221-page third amended complaint against some new defendants in the ongoing Pacific Hospital of Long Beach RICO case. Recently, one of the defendants in the case, Michael Drabot, filed a third-party complaint against, for equitable indemnity against 22 doctors, health executives, chiropractors, and one lawyer. Equitable indemnity says in theory that Drabot 
should not have to pay the state fund, but if it ends up that he does, then he wants others to share the blame with him and pay the damages. Thus, Drabat, in his indemnity lawsuit, is alleging that these 22 new defendants are somehow involved in what the state fund alleges he did. Following Drabat's implication of his alleged co-conspirators, the state fund has now asked to file a 221-page third amended complaint that asserts claims against those who were named by Drabat. Thus, the list of RICO defendants has now expanded to dozens of entities organized by roles such as individual defendants, surgical, pharmacy, and administrative defendants, provider defendants, and marketer defendants. If one were to write a treatise on methods to perpetrate medical fraud, the allegations of this new complaint would be a good guide. Topics in the suit include lack of licenses, corporate practice of medicine, payment of illegal referral fees and kickbacks, overbilling, pricing manipulation, unbundling, upcoding, and more. The state fund alleges that it has entered into settlement agreements with some of these defendants at the WCAB, which it now seeks to rescind. In this regard, it pleads that the state fund was unaware of the pattern of racketeering activity when it entered into the settlement agreements. Thus, the state fund seeks to unravel global settlement agreements it has made in the past with certain of these defendants and recover sums that have already been paid in lien resolution agreements. It is difficult for the state fund to add up what all of the above cost and damages. Essentially, it pleads that defendants have fraudulently received up to hundreds of millions of dollars from the state fund. RICO statutes allow treble damages and attorney fees in addition to the hundreds of millions of dollars they claim. Fresno County is trying to shield itself from high-cost lawsuits from inmates who worked at the Fresno Sheriff's Foundation shooting range the day a Pacific Gas and Electric pipeline exploded. It claims the inmates fall under the workers' compensation program. If the county succeeds, the medical bills of 10 injured inmates will be paid through workers' compensation, greatly reducing the county's financial burden. In addition, the inmates would not be able to sue the county for general damages. It would not, however, preclude the inmates from suing Pacific Gas, which owns and maintains the pipeline. The cause of the April 17 pipeline explosion at the Northwest Fresno Shooting Range is under investigation by the State Public Utilities Commission. It occurred while a county front loader was driving on a road atop a berm that was being maintained. The inmates were on the shooting ranges doing property maintenance. The loader driver was flattening dirt on the berm and was not digging at the time. One inmate died in the hospital while the loader driver, two deputies, and nine inmates were injured. Fresno County Council said that jail inmates who are performing work on sheriff's work crews are subject to workers' compensation coverage in most circumstances under state law. But the lawyer who represents five of the injured inmates said they are not employees. 
He claims workers' compensation has been paid to inmates in state prisons, but the distinction is that those inmates report to the same jobs every day. The attorney who represents a sixth inmate said there needs to be some form of pay to inmates for them to be employees. He added that the jail inmates only occasionally work, making their status as employees much more subject to question. A Fresno workers' compensation expert claims that if an inmate volunteered to work, he is not covered. The employee is covered if he is part of a designated work crew where he is offered the job and accepts it. And now our fraud report. Five ambulance companies have entered into civil settlements with the Department of Justice requiring them to collectively pay more than $11.5 million to resolve kickback allegations. The defendants include three Orange County-based companies, Pacific Ambulance, Bowers Companies, and Care Ambulance Service, and two San Diego-based companies, Balboa Ambulance Service and ER Ambulance. The settlements resolve allegations of so-called swapping kickback schemes by providing deeply discounted ambulance services to hospitals in exchange for exclusive rights to more lucrative Medicare patient referrals. Such swapping arrangements can lead to overutilization of medical services and inflated charges to the Medicare program. The anti-kickback statute prohibits payment arrangements that are intended to influence health care referrals. These settlements resolve a False Claims Act lawsuit filed by Kelvin Carlisle, a competitor in the ambulance marketplace. The whistleblower or key Tom provisions of the False Claims Act permit the whistleblower to recover a portion of the settlement proceeds. In this case, Mr. Carlisle will receive in excess of $1.7 million of the settlement. Since January 2009, the Justice Department has recovered more than $24 billion through False Claims Act cases. This case was investigated by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And in regulatory news, the DWC has posted draft regulations transitioning the California workers' compensation system from the ICD-9 system of diagnosis to the ICD-10 system effective October 1, 2015. ICD-10 is the 10th revision of the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems, a medical classification list maintained by the World Health Organization. The deadline for U.S. providers to begin using ICD-10-CM for diagnosis and procedural coding system, ICD-10-PCS for inpatient hospital procedure coding is... October 1, 2015. In preparation for this deadline, it is necessary for the DWC to update regulations and forms to refer to ICD-10 instead of ICD-9. Regulations that are being updated include DWC's medical billing and payment guide and the affected forms. The notice and text of the regulations can be found on the proposed regulations page. A public hearing is scheduled for 10 o'clock a.m. 
Tuesday, July 7, 2015, in room one of the Elihu Harris State Office Building, 1515 Clay Street in Oakland. Members of the public may also submit written comments on these regulations until 5 o'clock p.m. that day. Kaosha cited century window cleaning for five safety hazards following an investigation into a window washer's 11-story fall from the roof of a San Francisco building. Two of the five hazards cited were for serious violations, including the failure to secure the roof with fall protection equipment and inadequate training on the proper use of the victim's personal fall protection equipment. Calosha investigators determined that 58-year-old Pedro Perez was in the process of moving the extension cord of a suspended scaffold on a Montgomery Street building in San Francisco. As he moved toward the edge of the roof, he disconnected the lanyard of his fall protection equipment from an anchor point. He then lost his balance and tumbled over the edge, sending him 130 feet to the street below. He landed on a moving car where he laid wincing but miraculously alive on the crumpled roof of a green Toyota Camry. A spokesman with the California Department of Industrial Relations said the cushioning of the car he fell onto kept him alive. In total, there were five citations with proposed penalties of $12,765 issued in the case. Century Window Cleaning was issued a citation back in 2008 for four regulatory violations in Redwood City. Two of those involved work procedures and two involved use of equipment, but no accidents or injuries were involved. The company in that case was fined $2,720. Cal OSHA just concluded a statewide effort to highlight the importance of fall safety protection, including a review of fall protection equipment and the need to train on its use. In 2013, 22 of 61 fatalities in the construction industry were due to slips, trips, and falls. The safety director for the International Window Cleaners Association said that in 2013 there were 11 rescue situations, two of which involved fatalities. He claims that, relatively speaking, washing windows isn't even in the top 100 most dangerous professions. He added that what happened in San Francisco is extremely rare. Governor Brown announced that 64-year-old Deidre Lowe of Hillsborough has been reappointed to the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board, where she has served since 2008. Lowe was an attorney at Hannah Brophy, McLean, McLear, and Jensen from 1985 to 2008, House Counsel at Metz, Johnson, and Larson from 1981 to 1985, and an attorney at Green and Azvedo from 1979 to 1981. She earned a Juris Doctor degree from the University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law. This position requires Senate confirmation, and the compensation is $134,591 a year. Lowe is a Republican. 
64-year-old Jose Razo of San Mateo has been appointed to the California Workers' Compensation Appeals Board as well. Razo has been an associate attorney at Laughlin, Falbo, Levy, and Marisi since 2006. He was a partner at Pasternak and Razo from 1981 to 2006 and an associate attorney at Gary, Dreyfus, McTernan and Walsh from 1978 to 1981 and at the Legal Aid Society of San Mateo County before that. Mr. Razo earned his B.A. from Stanford University in 1973 and his Juris Doctor degree from the University of San Diego School of Law. His position also requires Senate confirmation and his compensation is also $134,591 a year. Razo is a Democrat. The DWC has issued a notice of public hearing to revise the hospital outpatient departments and ambulatory surgical centers fee schedule. The public hearing has been scheduled for 10 o'clock a.m. on June 17 in the auditorium of the Elihu Harris Building, 1515 Clay Street in Oakland. Members of the public may also submit written comment on that regulation until 5 o'clock p.m. that same day. This rulemaking action is necessary to make more specific the payment method for other services. It is necessary to provide guidance on the proper HIPPICS code to use for calculating other services as a result of changes in how Medicare categorizes these services. Refining the payment methodology to include guidance on which HIPPICS codes to use is needed because payable outpatient services might otherwise be denied. The notice and text of the regulation can be found on the proposed regulations page. The DWC has also announced that its Reading District Office has moved to 250 Hempstead Drive, second floor, Suite B in Reading. The main phone number remains the same, 530-225-2845. Kathleen Ortega is the presiding judge at the new location. Court is open from 8 o'clock a.m. till noon for the morning session and 1.30 p.m. till 5 for the afternoon session. The lobby opens at 8 a.m. five days a week except holidays. Items may be date stamped and filed at the front counter. No judges are available on Fridays to handle walkthrough items. An injured worker workshop is held every Friday of the month at 10 o'clock a.m. starting in May 2015. There is parking adjacent to and in the parking area around the building. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And please remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkCop Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.